Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Joshua Earl Arnold. He's a professor of sustainable agriculture, part of Warren Wilson College. And we're going to talk about sustainable agriculture. What does that mean? And his research. So, Josh, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. If you would tell me about uh, your background and uh, you know, then the kind of work that you're working on right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got really interested in food systems um, during my my undergraduate studies and at UC Berkeley, and it's really interested in kind of the sociology of how people interacted with food systems and you know how people made choices and all of those those interesting social questions. And I got to UC Berkeley and started doing some undergraduate research. And I got onto a research project as an intern early on where I was uh, counting a lot of insects out on our out on our crops, looking at crop pests and beneficial insects and really fell in love with sustainable agriculture from the entomology side of things. Found passion for some of these things that we can do on the applied side. So I trans- transitioned into doing my PhD research at UC Berkeley and specialized in biological control of pests and urban agriculture. You know, the Bay Area is one of those unique places that has a, a long history of urban agriculture that's very much associated with social movements. And, you know, most of those folks are out growing food without any kind of chemical inputs. So really interesting research questions in the context of how do we help urban farmers grow food in areas where the landscape is very complex and, uh, you know, they're they're not quite interested in, you know, using pesticides and things like that. So that's well, kind focus, of the- Yeah, let's focus on that, uh, urban farmers, you know. What are some of the challenges that they face? They had to grow in like, you know, in a closet or they barely have any space or <laughs> what are some of the problems? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's going to differ by location, right? So uh, depending on your country and, you know, what what city you're in. But there's a lot of social economic issues and also biophysical uh, kind of issues, right? So most urban farmers are not growing food on land that they own, right? So they have uh, security of tenure issues, and that definitely impacts practices, right? So if you um, are not sure if you're going to get kicked off your your land, you're probably going to make certain decisions about what you're growing and how you're growing things. Oftentimes, these sites are completely you know, funded on a shoestring, sometimes grant funding, a lot of volunteer labor, right? So, you know, a lot of folks growing food to, you know, address food security issues, but also um, that labor is also coming from folks that have food security issues. And then, you know, a whole swath of biophysical um, issues. So, you know, the fragmentation that we see in cities, you know, when we see um, impervious surface, concrete buildings, you know, freeways, et cetera, et cetera. They change the way the landscape 
functions, right? So it changes how species of insects or mammals are moving through the landscape. It changes water cycling. It changes nutrient cycling uh, oftentimes. So we have documented issues of reduced nutrient cycling, reduced water cycling. And then in urban areas, most of the time what we see with, you know, animals, whether they be insects or vertebrates that are selected for urban tolerant species, right? So things that are able to stay around in those disrupted habitats thrive, you know? So if you look around and you look at the birds, you'll see a lot of crows or a lot of house sparrows, but you won't see a a wide diversity. And we also see some of those same effects on the insect side, right? So things that provide pollination or biological control services are all impacted by that fragmentation, ostensibly should be impacted by that fragmentation. So A lot of the sustainable agriculture practices that people use are really reliant on ecosystem services from soil building or from insects or from plants, from trees, et cetera. So these things are all, um, you know, disrupted to some extent in urban areas. So, okay, the people that are growing in urban areas, are they just individuals? Are they urban farms that are large? Like, you know, who do you consult with and talk to? And again, what are the issues they have particularly? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very, you know, it's variable as well, right? So on scale and also, you know, management, you see a wide spectrum, right? So you have everything from, you know, people growing in soilless systems, you know, vertical systems to people growing in, uh, you know, little patches of, of land to, you know, nonprofit farms to profit farms. So uh, quite quite the diversity of uh, production systems, which is to me to me really exciting. You know, and as far as those those issues go, you know, what are some examples and case studies, you know, so there's not just uh, generalities and stuff. Any any come to mind? Um, you know, so the cost of water is uh, definitely one that is uh, a challenge for folks. So, you know, water costs are quite high and obviously you have to water crops. So um, most cities don't offer up um, agricultural kind of uh, subsidies for uh, for irrigation. So uh, water costs can be quite high. Kind of issues around, you know, biological control of crop pests is, is quite interesting. We've seen a lot of different effects. So you see everything from you know, increased biological control of crop pests in gardens or small farms. And we call this the uh, kind of urban island effect, right? If there's not a lot of rich and diverse habitat and spread throughout the city, you know, the organisms that are still in the city might move to those areas, right? And use those areas more exclusively, might have more fidelity to those areas. And so, you know, security of tenure, once again, is is a huge issue. We did a big survey of uh, farmers, urban farmers in Los Angeles, California, or Los Angeles County, and also in the San Francisco Bay Area region, these two, kind of two high cost uh, urban areas to figure out how many folks actually owned the property or had, you know, legal agreements with property owners that might uh, keep them a bit more secure. Um, and uh, it's quite low. So less than 5% actually own the property they're farming. And then, you know, a fair amount have leases, long-term leases, but the majority have very short-term leases or just memorandums of understanding with property owners, which means that their security of tenure can be quite, quite tenuous. So those are kind of some of the large issues. We do see more pestiferous insects in urban agriculture, so more crop pests. And there's a lot of discussion about why this is, and it could be 
variety of factors, including um, stressed urban plants, right? So with that reduced nutrient water cycling, you might have urban trees or um, plants in the urban landscape that are stressed, right? And unable to mount particularly vigorous defenses against pest insects. You have a lot of uh, what we would call rural areas, right? A lot of areas that are not managed. And so this could be um, sources for pest insects to, to infiltrate into urban farms and gardens. So you do have quite well, a bit. There just might be no prey to prey on these pests. Maybe that's why they're proliferating. Yeah, yeah. And that the impacts to those beneficial insects that are out there. So parasitoid wasps, you know, spiders, you know, spiders is one that we've seen some documented declines in abundance and diversity. Obviously, anything that's ground mobile is probably going to have more difficult time getting around in an urban environment. You know, you can imagine the little the little spider crossing the road. Things that are flying tend to do a little bit better. Ladybugs, you know, parasitoid wasps, etc. So, you know, impacts are going to be slightly varied, but yeah, uh, generally speaking, pest insects seem to reach higher levels of abundance in urban areas. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. But again, the, the people that have stable places to grow for a long time, what are their issues? What kind of things do they run into? What are some examples? Well, I mentioned uh, cost of water and then these increased levels of herbivorous insects in their in their gardens. Those are certainly uh, issues that could be experienced from the biophysical side. You mean they Wait, so they have more insects, just fewer different kinds of them? Or, you know, they have a problem with pests, but they don't? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, definitely more increased pest pressures in urban areas, right? So that idea about how urban areas that are particularly fragmented or impacted by urbanization, um, selecting for species that are urban tolerant, it does seem like herbivorous insects tend to fall further on the spectrum of uh, urban tolerance, right? So they're able to persist for longer periods of time in these urban areas. And then these beneficial insects that we're talking about, you know, um, that might be providing natural biological control, you know, so we're talking about, uh, you know, social wasps and parasitoid wasps and ladybugs and other, you know, predaceous beetles, these things, spiders, these things have a harder time moving throughout the landscape. So these pest pressures can be um, more intense. And what about the growing itself? You know, the fertilizer inputs or being able to get any kind of appreciable yield, you know, yeah, so that's sun uh, reaching them, et cetera. Yeah, so that's a really interesting thing. So, you know, we, we spent three years looking at yields of urban farms in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we estimated that they are probably growing somewhere between about 17 to 30 pounds fresh produce per square meter. So a lot of production, right? So despite some of these challenges, folks are growing a lot of food, which is pretty amazing. And for the most part, they're reaching success by really 
intensive regenerative agricultural practices. You know, a lot of compost applications, a lot of biodiversity. So a lot of intercropping systems where you're growing a lot of different plants in one area, a lot of crop rotations and cover crop. And so despite challenges, you know, um, of costs of uh, water and security of tenure and potentially some of these impacts to beneficial insects, folks are still overcoming and growing a lot of food. What do you see as some of the, the challenges coming this year in particular? Anything that's, uh, that you've seen that's changed? I mean, there's a lot of talk of uh, food shortages and supply chain problems. What are you seeing for urban farmers that they're going to have issues with? Yeah, I think one of the things that really kind of showed us some of the value of urban agricultural production was COVID-19, right? So when COVID-19 hit and folks were seeing, you know, uh, grocery stores impacted, supply chains impacted, urban farmers really stepped up, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area and a lot of the farms that I studied for my uh, dissertation research, and they produced a lot of food uh, for folks in their community. We know that about 90% of the produce that's grown in these areas really stays pretty hyper-local, right? So the folks that are working on the farms or live near the farms are associated with, you know, um, organizations that might be affiliated with the farms are typically the beneficiaries of what's grown there. And during COVID-19, they really, they really shined, right? The, the community really showed up. And, um, you know, a good example of this is Giltract Farm that is on UC Berkeley land in Albany, California. Students, you know, schools, school shut down and students went out there and community members went out there and grew food and started CSAs and started bringing, you know, boxes of fresh vegetables to folks that were in need. Um, so I think idea of urban agriculture is slightly shifted during this time period. And uh, I think the value of it has started to, to change a little bit in people's eyes, you know, especially in the context of these um, supply chain disruptions, you know. Anecdotally, because these farms are using regenerative agricultural practices and practicing agroecology, the inputs required are somewhat minimal, right? So nutrient cycling on the farm is a really important aspect of a lot of these practices that people are employing. So I was talking to a farmer just this past week about fertilizer. You know, he said, he said, I didn't even know there was a fertilizer shortage because, you know, I don't use any. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to manage nutrients on, on farms, especially in small farming systems. So, well, well, quick question here, an urban farm, I would think they'd have a problem cycling their nutrients because Let's say I need to do compost. Where am I going to put it if I'm in a room? You know, yeah. how would they, you know, can they capture enough rainwater, let's say that, you know, so they can lower their water bill? Like, I don't know, do you think that urban farms have a better ability to cycle nutrients or it's harder for them? You know, so I talked a little bit about soil conditions when I was talking about the challenges, right? So most of these farms do, um, do start on marginal urban land, right? So um, when we think about the areas that are, you know, most devalued in the urban land cycle, you know, uh, uh, those vacant lots that have, you know, the tires thrown on them or they're covered in weeds or people haven't been able to build on, you know, those are typically the areas where urban agriculture um, starts to shine, you know, and uh, there's certainly a challenge to starting the site, right? You know, it's going to take a, a few years to probably get things up and running, but for the most part, most everybody is 
using compost and cycling nutrients on the farm, right? So, you know, a good example of this is in uh, Berkeley, California, a certain percentage of the municipal compost is given back to the community, right? So on those compost giveaway days, you know, folks uh, drive their trucks down in their cars and load up as much compost as they can and then bring it back uh, to their farm or their small garden. But almost all of these sites are are composting to some extent on on the property, right? So where where those practices really shine through, right, uh, are in overcoming these reliances on external inputs, right? Even though, you know, they might be growing food on some some pretty marginal lands, right? So again, is it harder for people to cycle nutrients or is it easier or, you know, what are the trade-offs you see with urban agriculture? What's it good at and why and what's it have real difficulties with and why? Well, I think I've answered the difficulties question to some extent, you know, and yeah, I, I just wonder if there's any other any other things that jump out. No, I mean, according to our research, uh, my research personally, that's that's really access to land and access to water and being able to financially sustain farms is really, really the the big challenges, right? There's a lot of discussion about, you know, where do these products come from, you know, or where do these products go and where does production go in the context of urban agriculture production? Quick question here. Um, you know, like around Christmas time, I see like Halloween, you know, you see Halloween stores popping up and retail centers. That's fine. Christmas time, I see Christmas tree farms popping up on unused land on commercial parcels. So is anyone that you work with, have they developed a system to approach landowners, let's say churches or apartment complexes or anyone that has a lot of unused land and to, I don't know if it's called sharecropping, but to set up something where they can lease that land and grow stuff on it and they don't have to go find their own land. And perhaps they could find stuff right in the city. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that is a, a strategy that a lot of people use. So city parkland, schools is, a, is, a, is definitely a, a community partner that we see have been very successful. You know, churches, also faith-based communities have been very accepting of, of hosting urban farmers on their land. So those those are the ways that oftentimes urban farmers do, you know, approach some form of security of tenure, right? It is always uh, a little tenuous though, right? Because these, uh, the land in urban areas are always going to typically be valued by the highest and best use, right? So, you know, and growing food on a half an acre in an urban core is not always going to be considered the highest and best use, right? So whoever does ultimately own that land um, is going to be able to make the decision about how it, you know, it's it's longevity, right? So you do see um, conversion of urban farms for development frequently. And that is uh, part of that, uh, part of that risk factor there, you know, and yeah, the I've, I lost track of the, the previous question that you had there. Well, sorry, this one kind of jumped in front, but um, so there is so people do lease land from different places, you know, churches, schools, et cetera. Is there any, um, I don't know, wisdom in how to do that the right way versus, you know, the wrong way? What makes that work for people that do it? I don't know if there's any, you know, again, any wisdom to be had about that. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I do know from interviews is that, you know, uh, obtaining 
long-term leases is obviously preferable, right? So you do have some uh, kind of legal footing and some understanding of how long you'll be able to be on on that land, right? So long-term leases are are certainly preferred in that context. Uh, memorandums of understanding, um, you know, don't don't have a lot of teeth legally, so um, those those are not uh, so so preferred. And um, short-term leases are great, and sometimes that's how people start out, and sometimes um, that can that can roll into something that's a bit more a bit more long-term. Hmm. Other issues that uh, you see farm getting land obviously is an issue, but once they have something, it doesn't seem like the land they're on makes it too difficult to farm. I guess what is it? The economics of it makes it the most difficult. Uh, you know, are urban farmers tending to be homesteaders because they just don't have enough land and material to sell off excess produce to other people, or what does it look like? Well, I. <laughs> You know, and, and this is kind of a greater question of economics, right? You know, if you're, what, what is the overall goal of the, of the organization and the farm, right? So if it's a production farm, you know, there's been qu- quite a bit of legislation. Uh, like if you look at California, Sacramento is a good case study for this. They've worked on allowing urban farmers to basically just pop up farm stands and, and sell produce, you know, right, right off the farm. Some places you have to go through a little bit more red tape in order to sell things off the farm. But generally speaking, what we see is that production is not necessarily the main goal, right? Especially production in the context of profit right? The main goal is typically to address food security and to contribute to the community, right? Um, And also there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, urban farms can contribute to uh, people's access to the outdoors and, you know, education in the context of bringing kids out to the outdoors. So it really comes down to, you know, how folks are valuing what they're doing, right? And typically, you know, nobody's out there, even though they're growing a ton of food, they're not out there trying to grow food for profit, right? Um, even though some might get sold off the farm, it typically does stay in the community. Oh, uh, do you see urban farmers working together and kind of sharing produce? You know, you grow X, I'll grow Y, so-and-so grows Z and we trade? Or do they kind of work independently? Yeah, that's definitely been a discussion. In the context of you know regional uh, food systems, you know the idea of um, you know how can uh, folks work together to kind of uh, create an economy of scale where they can potentially make some enough profit to make the the farm viable while also addressing those community food security needs. And a lot of times, what we see is just a, a lack of uh, infrastructure that's there to kind of support those kind of situations, right? So. If you, you know, think of a city that's got 10 different farms, you know, you're going to, and they're all working together to grow certain things at certain times of the year to create an economy of scale and get things to market. You're going to need, you know, food storage systems, uh, food transportation systems, um, and those things typically uh, side of being a bit too um, pricey for a lot of the folks that are that are farming at this scale, right? So that stuff's we see some of that a little bit more on the peri-urban side, or maybe the rural, you know, side where folks are bringing food into the city. Um, we see a little bit more collaboration that way, it seems. And I know that there are certainly urban farms out there that are uh, working in in concert, um, you know. But for the most part, what you see is volunteer labor on these farms, kind of just uh, growing as much food as they can in the time that they have. Um, and getting it to their local community. Hmm. Okay. 
Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and where can you know potential urban farmers or existing ones find resources to help them with whatever their issues are? Oh boy. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's just a ton of uh, uh, regional urban agriculture or agricultural resources, depending on where folks are at. So it's really going to be place dependent, you know, so reach out to your local urban farmers and talk to them and see what they need and see where they're getting resources from. A lot of uh, land-grant universities have started to incorporate urban agriculture um, advisors into their extension programs. So certainly uh, folks in larger cities with larger research institutions could be getting some some help there. Um, uh, but but generally speaking, you know, it's going to be really regionally specific. Um, there are a lot of organizations, um, you know, Seattle has the Pea Patch Gardens, um, which is a really interesting model where the pea patches are funded by a local tax revenue. And that's certainly an interesting model that folks could, you know, move towards, you know, engaging with your local, you know, government is, is certainly a way um, to impact the ability for urban agriculture to thrive over time. So I think those are all uh, all good advice. You know, as far as uh, research goes, boy, oh boy, we have a lot of folks that are out there researching urban ag at this point, you know. So <laughs> where can you find out more about my work? I'm now professor of sustainable agriculture at Warren Wilson College. So we're a little bit more rural here and we run a animal operation and a row crop operation. And we're one of the federally recognized work colleges. So students run our farm and our uh, vegetable uh, garden. So, you know, definitely reach out to um, local universities and colleges that are doing work in your in your community. And we have a lot of resources for folks out there and love to work with folks in the community. Yeah. And last question, what, what are some of the topics that you've seen that are, are big in terms of research and in urban farming? Oh, boy. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of time uh, kind of uh, working on this this idea about insects, right? And how insects are impacted by fragmentation. Um, certainly some of these uh, biogeophysical kind of things like nutrient cycling and water cycling have been hot topics. There's a lot of good folks out there doing work on that. So Stacy Philpott's lab at UC Santa Cruz has been really instrumental. Both her and Monica Egger, who's now at, out in Munich in Germany, they've been really uh, pivotal in addressing and researching a lot of these impacts to insects in these systems. You know, there's a lot of things to be there's a lot of things to be done and a lot of issues to be addressed. You know, a lot of folks are kind of thinking about this idea of moving towards soilless systems in urban areas, right? And, you know, what do these vertical farms look like? So I think there's going to be a lot of interest around that and a lot of research that needs to be done on that. You know, I'm a big proponent of urban farms that produce a lot of ecosystem services, you know, uh, habitat for animals and clean the air and help with nutrient cycling and connect to their community. And so far, a lot of the vertical soilless systems seem to be very closed off, right, and very contained. And I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about what those look like in urban areas and whether or not they're actually going to address food security, right? So we've seen a lot of, you know, multi-million dollar vertical operations uh, go into operation and they're still after, you know, a decade just growing lettuce that's getting sold at Whole Foods, you know? So, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion around that moving forward. And I think whether or not that's appropriate and what kind of impact that has to the urban landscape is going to be a, a pretty salient discussion. Well, very good. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your knowledge. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to uh, seeing what you all are up to. And, you know, anybody can find me out here at Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. 
Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.